time on, after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo, undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world, but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what he has done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise God. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. About a year ago, I wrote in our newsletter that from time to time, we would use God's given personal proper name in our worship service instead of the ubiquitous Lord, as is often written in Old Testament passages. I haven't always followed through with it, but you would have noticed it in the psalm this morning for sure, for example. Uh, but it just seems important that we know what this name is and why God gave this name and what this name might mean. For the name of God is surely more than just a name. And when we consider that it is also the name of Jesus, yes, I really said that, then perhaps we understand or can understand our Christian faith even more when we know and apply the name of God to Jesus Christ. If you recall that newsletter article, and why would you, but it's been a while, but maybe some of you never read it, I mentioned that in almost every version of the Bible, English versions, I can't speak for others, but wherever the proper name of God appears in the original Hebrew, it's substituted with the word Lord. It's usually all caps or small caps, capital L, then small caps, O-R-D. So if you just have a Bible, you open it up, and you see Lord in all caps anywhere in the Old Testament, you'll know that in the original Hebrew, the name there is the name given to Moses today in Exodus 3, the tetragrammaton, the four-letter name for God, Yahweh. We add the A and the E as vowels, but the original is four letters, uh, Y-H-W-H, as we have them now. And that means that that is the word there for God, the name there for God, the proper given name for God, rather than the generic word in Hebrew for Lord, which is Adonai. That, that could mean if you're, you know, you, you, your governor is your Lord, uh, he, he's your Adonai. 
But the idea came to be that we would never use the proper name of God because we don't want to speak the name of God in vain. And so if you never say the name, then you don't speak it in vain. Now, I'm not sure that is exactly true. I think that you cannot speak the proper name of God and still use God's uh, name in vain. And there are definitely drawbacks to not using the proper name of God. For one, it can lead to some sort of confusing translations. The most commonly cited psalm in the New Testament, for example, is Psalm 110. And you surely know it. It begins this way. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, if you look at Psalm 110 in any English Bible, except for about one or two, the Lord's there will be printed differently. One will be all caps, meaning it is the stand-in for the proper name of God, and the other will be normally capital L, lowercase r-d, which means that word in Hebrew is the generic word for Lord, Adonai. But if you put it how it would have been heard by any Hebrew person, then it's this. Yahweh said to my Lord. And so there you have that proper distinction between the God of the entire universe and one's temporal ruler. Using God's proper name also is a difference in calling God by his name rather than something equivalent to a title. God is not just a mere office holder, some nameless, faceless, one-dimensional character. God is personal, and he relates to us personally, and he certainly relates to people in the Bible personally. Imagine calling all of your co-workers not by their name, but by their title. Hey, a vice president, could you get me a copy of that memo? Hey, office administrator, could you make ten copies of this memo for me? I could go all day with titles and memo jokes, okay? But God's name is, is very prevalent in the Old Testament. You might think never using it must mean, well, it's only ever said five times or ten times. No, the proper name of God in the Hebrew is in the Old Testament over 5,000 times. It's on virtually every page of the Old Testament. And my argument is that reading from God's own word, given to us by God, which includes his proper name, is not something to be afraid of so long as we don't do so in vain. And it seems that if we're honoring God through the reading of his word as it was given, that's not doing so in vain at all. In fact, God seems to want his name known. Indeed, it's interesting that in this passage from Exodus, a very famous passage with so much famous imagery, the, the, the bush that's burning that never is consumed in fire, uh, and the great line, you know, take your sandals off for you're standing on holy ground. But really it's the name that God gives to Moses to take back to the Israelites that is arguably the most important part of this passage. And what is that name then? Let's look at it. Well, it's usually translated, I am. I am. It, it, the word itself is sort of untranslatable and one thinks that God intended it to be that way. Or it might mean something like, I am that I am. I am what I am. But that four-letter word again in, in our English, Y-H-W-H, and, and we add vowels to it so that it's kind of pronounceable. People say it's not pronounceable, but I don't know. That means we should never say it. But we come out with Yahweh. 
And, and by the way, our first hymn uh, was, we said Jehovah. Well, Jehovah, in, in Latin, there is no Y. So that letter becomes a J, uh, and the W becomes a V. Uh, and then if you take Elohim, which is the generic Hebrew word for God, you take those vowels and you take those letters, you put them together, that's how you come up with Jehovah, by the way. But Yahweh really is the Hebrew this four-letter, that's the Hebrew name for God. And there are, there are two very important things here. The first is that having been in Egypt for over 400 years, remember, Moses is going into Egypt to get the Israelites out of Egypt. They, had, they went there from the time of the 12 sons of Jacob and Joseph and that whole story, and now it's time to come out. Well, they'd been there a very long time, about 430 years, and they'd probably become pretty pagan by that point. And God seems to want to be sure that when Moses goes back, they know that he is now fulfilling the covenants made to their fathers, right? to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So what does God say? You tell them that I am sent you. And what's my name? My name, I'm the, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's who I am. I'm the God of your fathers. And remember, I made a promise to them. That, I, that you would have, uh, that Abraham would have descendants as many as the stars in the sky. That process is ongoing, by the way. You're a part of that covenant right now. Uh, but also that I would provide a land for you and a place for you. Well, now's the time. The time has come. So you're going to have to leave Egypt now. And we know the story of how this plays out, right? It's, the Israelites aren't always very happy about having left and ending up in the wilderness and, and so on. But I wonder if God isn't also saying to Moses, not just for the Israelites, but also for the Egyptians, who am I? Who is the God that's about to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I am. The Egyptians had ten gods, you see. That's why there were ten plagues when Moses, further on in the story, when he inflicts the plagues upon Egypt. And, but what God is saying is, no, no, there's not, there's not a lot of gods. There's not the God of the water and the God of the air and the God of the this and the God of that and the God. No, no, no. There, there's one God, and I'm He. And what God is really saying then, far be it for me to plumb the depths of the name of God, but he seems to be saying, I am the source of all creation. Without my existence, nothing else would exist, right? In a certain manner of speaking, God really is existence itself. Not to say that God is synonymous with the creation. There's a strong creator-creation distinction, and those who mix that up commit a grave error. But without this God, there would be nothing. That's a pretty bold claim to make. And because I am is, creation also can be. And so that's really quite the blow to any pagan religion. And so God seems to be wanting to be conveying a very clear message through Moses to the Egyptians and certainly to the Israelites. This is who I am. So this name, then, it seems to me, should be known by Christians, but it's usually not. It's the kind of thing you learn your first year in seminary, but it sort of stays there, and then all of the English versions of the Bible we have just say Lord, and we just sort of go along with that forever. That's changing. New translations, I predict, in the next 10 or 20, 30 years will start to use the name Yahweh instead of Lord. I, I make that prediction. And um, But knowing God and knowing his name, well... It makes what we believe as Christians all the more remarkable. Because I'm concerned that the kind of Christianity that's often peddled today is really a very kind of domesticated 
version of Christianity. For example, we don't pay a lot of attention to the God of the Old Testament. In fact, that phrase shouldn't even exist. God, there is no God of the Old Testament. There's just God. He's the God of the whole world and all the Testaments and the whole bit. But we often think that this God of the Old Testament is mean. And, you know, he smites tribes. But Jesus, well, he's nice and compassionate and merciful. And we tend to focus on Jesus, right? Actually, when we want to understand who Jesus really is, or if we want to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, what do we mean by that? God is one being and three persons. Well, here the name of God, I think, would actually be very helpful. Because we tend to associate the word God with the Father. I mean, if I just said God, what image comes to mind? I'm guessing it's the Father. But when we speak about God, we as Christians have a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So here's a helpful way that the given name of God, Yahweh, this name given to Moses, might help us understand the Trinity. The Father is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, and the Spirit is Yahweh. You see, you see, they all are one being, and yet they are three persons. And if we are therefore, therefore to try to move a biblical case in the Trinity, that is what, that is what we want to, want to prove. That the God, the God of Exodus, Exodus 3, being given by God, God, God in Exodus 3, what we believe by the Father, the Son, the Son, and the Spirit. The Spirit. Yahweh, Yahweh then is descriptive of the being of God. God. When Christians, when Christians talk about their faith, faith, we are speaking of an unbroken, unbroken chain of revelation. revelation. From the very, very, very beginning of creation, the first word of Genesis, all the way through to Jesus Christ and the giving of the Spirit. And my concern is that we so often just kind of focus on, the, say, the moral teachings of Jesus, for example, that we can even isolate Jesus from the rest of creation itself. But the God who spoke to Moses from that burning bush is the same God who would end up on the cross several centuries later. Now, I'm not saying that the Father was on the cross. That would be heresy. I'm saying that the Son was on the cross, but the Son is Yahweh, just as who spoke to Moses is also Yahweh. Now, no wonder Peter took such offense. In fact, you might have noticed in the reading that Peter calls Jesus Lord. Okay, so Peter in the earlier part of Matthew 16 confesses, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, in this portion, Jesus is now saying, well, this is what the Son of God, the Messiah, must undergo. I must undergo suffering at the hands of the scribes, and the elders, and I must be killed. And so Peter says, no, that can't happen, and Jesus famously says, well, get behind me, Satan. Well, again, no wonder that Peter took such offense. He understood who Jesus was, and, he, and Yahweh should not have to bear the sins of the world. He should not have to suffer. But he must. And why? Well, because the creation has rebelled. The creation knows that I am exists, and yet it has fallen into sin and suppressed knowledge of God in an attempt to live life on our own terms. In our rebellion, we have hurt ourselves and we have offended God. We have not lived or thought or spoken as we ought. We confess that every Sunday morning. Indeed, we cannot live in such a way. But Yahweh, of both the Old and the New Covenant, is compassionate. 
and full of mercy. And out of his love for his people, he gave himself as a sacrificial offering. Just as Yahweh rescued his people from Egypt, Jesus rescued his people from an even worse fate, an eternity separated from God. And he could do that because Jesus was Yahweh, is Yahweh. That's why Paul can famously write in Romans 8 that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why can he say that? Why can we not ever be separated from the work of Christ? Because the work of Christ was so satisfactory. Because it accomplished all that it set out to accomplish. Because Jesus was a suitable substitute for our own sin. Because Jesus was Yahweh. If Jesus was anything less than Yahweh, then his death on the cross merited you nothing. So that means that nothing you have ever done can outdo the good thing that Jesus has done for you. So who do we say our God is to the unbelievers who would ask? He is the great I am. And for all with ears to hear and eyes to see, his power is on display, not only at the Exodus, but also on the cross. Our call is to believe that Jesus is Yahweh and that God has performed an unbroken chain of works for us to see. But at each turn, the God who did all of this was Yahweh, the great I Am. Amen.